Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages, amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee as a heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker this evening received a Master's of Arts degree from Dallas University and an STL and STD from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, Dr. Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has since served continuously as professor of theology, a regular uh, speaker and friend of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please welcome back Dr. William Marshner. All right. Thank you for the introduction, and I'm sure you are all familiar with the very important document put out by Vatican II, probably the most important document that Council did put out, namely the one on the Church, Dogmatic Constitution de Ecclesia. That document we will be talking about next week because it was written to make up for the... Um, do you all know the fancy word lacunae? Holes? <laughs> the holes left in the doctrine on the church by the untimely um, closure of the First Vatican Council. Uh, it wasn't a closure. In fact, Vatican I was never even officially adjourned. Okay. It was summoned by Pius IX, met in 1869, 1870, and then had to be interrupted by the Franco-Prussian War because um, <laughs> the troops of Napoleon III, emperor so-called of the French, were keeping Rome safe from dangerous Italian nationalists. He had to withdraw his troops to fight Prussia in 1870. It was a short war. He lost it quickly. But anyway, um, in 1870, the council had gotten through just two pieces of business and then had to disperse. Okay? And the result of that premature dispersal 
was that most of what the Council, Vatican I, wanted to teach about the Holy Church, its prerogatives, its nature, and so on, never got into print at the Council. Drafts were written, all right? And I'll tell you about those next time. But the texts were never finally approved. Only one part of them was finally approved, namely the part on the supreme uh, pontiff, uh, the, the, the prerogatives and the role and the authority of the Holy See. Okay? Now, at um, Vatican Council I, Uh, the famous part of the definition concerns uh, infallibility, of course, but that is only the uh, last portion of the Constitution, uh, Pastor Eternus, it's called, uh, on the Church and on the authority and primacy of the Pope. Um, Pastor Eternus is called the first dogmatic constitution on the Church of Christ. They intended to follow it up with others and didn't get to them. Now, 1870 is um, rather a late date in the temporal perspective of a theologian. 1870 was the day before yesterday. Um, so you might think that in defining this point that the Pope has a universal primacy of jurisdiction over the whole church, that he is an Episcopal superior, so to speak, of every bishop in the church, you might think that this was aimed at reproving conciliarism. Now, does the word conciliarism ring bells? Okay. Let me say a word. Oh, yes, we have a... Oh, look at this. Con. Silly... Oh, oh fooey. With a C. Conciliarism. Yes, indeed. Conciliarism was long dead by 1870. It only had a living shadow, so to speak, an after-effect, which I'll get to in a minute. First, let's explain where conciliarism came from and what is its basic claim. The basic claim of conciliarism is that the supreme authority in the church is in the hands of an ecumenical council. Okay? The bishops of the world united together in council, in teaching, are the subject of supreme teaching authority. They have it. And they are the true source of any doctrine that counts as infallible, irreformable, and so on. Well, what, what about the Holy See? After all, if you go back in history and look at the documents of the Council of Ephesus, 
and then again at the Council of Chalcedon, you see that the fathers of those councils were very free to recognize that they were but subscribing to the truth they had already received uh, from uh, great occupants of the Holy See, like Pope Leo I. However, uh, the uh, Third Council of Constantinople had a problem on its hands which introduced a kind of a wrinkle here. Never mind what the Third Council of Constantinople was all about. You don't want to know about uh, monothelitism, do you? It was a harebrained scheme to reunite the churches of the world with the great sea of Alexandria. Okay. How to get the Monophysites in Alexandria back on board with universal orthodoxy it was a project of the Emperor Heraclius, who is a great hero of mine militarily, but who, alas, uh, thought he needed the religious unity of the realm behind him and hence tried this scheme. And he had working for him an Archbishop of Constantinople named Cyril. <laughs> Cyril was smart, very smart. And he drafted up a document that would expound this one will in Christ position. Monothelitism means one will-ism, one will in our Lord. And he wrote it up in such a way and then sent a letter to Pope Liberius in such a way that Liberius said, oh, gee, this is nothing. This is a, yeah, sure, I'll sign on. This is a, a quarrel among nitpickers. Well, it wasn't. Liberius had not done his homework, had not thought carefully about the issue, uh, to say the least. And as a result, the Third Council uh, of Constantinople condemned that pope. Okay? Now then, when the acts of this council were reviewed in Rome, the pope did not approve that particular portion of it, that canon condemning that pope. He approved of it only in part. Okay? He admitted that Vigilius had been, um, Liberius had been careless and inattentive to his duties. Okay? Inattentive to his duties. But he maintained, uh, the pope at the time maintained that this predecessor of his had never actually embraced the heretical position. Okay. But the idea that an ecumenical council could condemn a previous pope gave rise to the idea that the council, a council, if it's ecumenical, rightly called and all that, is in fact superior to the Holy See and can sit in judgment on its occupant. All right? And indeed, that was the understanding of the matter which prevailed in the Eastern Church. As I say, in the Western Church, the Pope 
did not admit that uh, Vigilius uh, was really condemned, only that he was spankworthy for having neglected his duties. And of course, many, many ecumenical councils have been uh, called upon to deal with reform of conduct of churchmen, reform in head and members, it's called. And when you have to preach up reform, you often have to call out uh, ecclesiastical dignitaries and give them at least a verbal spanking because they didn't do their job. All right. That is a very remote source of conciliarism. Let's go to the immediate source. This brings us to um, the first half of the 15th century when Western Europe was plagued by a schism of its own. This was called the Great Schism of the West, and you had at one point three claimants to the papacy. Great doubt as to who was the real one. Nobody saw any way to solve the problem except to call something like a combination of an ecumenical council and a parliament of Europe. It had to also be a parliament of Europe because these papal pretenders, whether they were the real one or not, but these pretenders all had some royal support somewhere. So you needed a political side as well as a theological side to the settlement. All right. At this council, which met in Constance, Council of Constance in Switzerland and also later on at uh, Baal, Basel. A number of the participants did indeed hold the view that this council was the supreme authority in the church in such a way that it could fix the papal problem. Okay? And that it would now be clear that the Holy See would be subject to the review and the judgment of ecumenical councils. Among those holding this opinion and who was in attendance at the Council of Constance was a cardinal named Pierre Dailly. A-I-L-L-Y. I hope I'm, I've got all of his letters in there. Pierre Dailly, uh, cardinal archbishop of a diocese in France called Cambrai. C-A-M-B-R-A-I. He developed a uh, fairly explicitly conciliarist position. Right? Nevertheless, his theology did not prevail at the council. Okay? It was a theory held by some persons active at the council it was not adopted as an official position 
of the Council. And here's the sense in which the Council of Constance solved the problem of the Great Western Schism. Okay. It did not depose any popes. If you have been told that, forget it. It's false. It did not depose any popes. Okay. The members of the council and the attendant royalty and so on decided that the only way to get progress was to persuade all three claimants to the Roman See to resign. This took some doing, as you can imagine. But eventually, this great task was accomplished. Okay. All three of the claimants, there was a Benedict XIII, uh, there was a uh, Martin V, various people. All three, there was a Julian, never mind. All three of them were persuaded to resign. Okay. Whereupon, by general agreement, the conclave met and elected a new pope just the way any pope is elected by a conclave. Okay. So what the only point of theological importance, it seems to me, that is proved by the Council of Constance is that, yes, a pope can resign. Okay? Sure. If you get tired of the job, you can resign. If there's too much opposition to what you want to do, you can resign. I sometimes feel in my heart greatly saddened that nobody persuaded Paul VI to resign but I won't get into that. Anyway, um, these guys resigned, the claimants, all resigned. The conclave met. The cardinals elected a pope, okay, who then approved of the work of the council to some extent. And the extent to which he approved it did not include any of the erroneous opinions of Pierre Dailly. All right. Now, rough date, put this around 1450. Okay. And um, years go by. The Protestant Reformation breaks out. Uh, there are huge fights about papal power. Right? waged by the Protestants. And over the course of those centuries, the view that the Holy See is indeed um, uh, succeeding to a primacy given to Peter in that famous statement in uh, Matthew chapter 16. You are Peter on this rock I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Etc., etc. That was a promise of primacy to Peter. And traditionally, the end of St. John's Gospel, where uh, Christ says to Peter repeatedly, Do you love me? And he says, Yeah. And Christ says, Feed my sheep. That's traditionally interpreted as the actual conferral of this promised primacy. 
Well, these points had become pretty well universal in the Catholic world. And the some kind of superiority of the Holy See over any other body in the church was also pretty well admitted. After all, without the work of the Holy See, uh, reading over councils, calling councils, approving councils, um, there was just too much trouble figuring out what was an ecumenical council and what wasn't. Okay. The Council of Constance was a perfect example of this. Once the participants involved succeeded in getting rid of the antipopes, did they go home? No, no, no. They more or less put themselves into permanent session continued their deliberations on at the town of Basel, and the Holy See eventually said, this is no longer an ecumenical council, this is junk. <laughs> well, uh, who are you going to... If you leave it up to a council to decide if it is an ecumenical council, you can, you can have the problem that, you know, People get together and proclaim themselves an ecumenical council, and they're not. So, the judgment of the Holy See proved to be crucial in this period that was recognized in the, in the debates against the Reformation. And the primacy of the Holy See and the importance of the Pope as universal teacher in the Church was fully recognized by the greatest of our anti-Protestant theologians. Okay? The man who was a Jesuit with a photographic memory. He was a walking concordance of all the works of St. Augustine. Man was an absolute genius. And he wrote this huge series of controversies with the Protestants covering every topic from the canon of scripture down to you know the power of the pope and uh, the details of the Eucharist and so on. I'm talking about St. Robert Bellarmine. Okay. Bellarmine was a firm defender of the primacy of the Holy See. And I also better tell you one more thing. Bellarmine was a firm defender of what is called the indirect power of the Pope over secular princes. Okay. Indirect power is very different from direct power. There had been medieval popes who maintained that, thanks to the primacy given them by Christ, who is the king of everything, they are themselves the source of all royal power and authority in the world. So kings only reign by their consent, tolerance, whatever. And if the pope wants to depose the king, he deposes him. This theory, Bellarmine rejected. Good. It was a very bad theory. 
the indirect power is of another kind. It says that matters of state, political matters, can come under the judgment of the church by reason of sinful conduct of the prince. Okay? If the prince does wrong, if he injures his subjects, injures his realm, all right, if he does all that, then the church may have a right to intervene and pronounce that the king has sinned. And then it's up to his subjects to decide what to do about it. Right? The Holy See had an interesting precedent going all the way back to the beginnings of the Carolingian dynasty. The last of the old dynasty in France, the Merovingians, uh, apparently a pretty degenerate fellow, wasn't running the country. And certain nobles approached the Holy See and asked if it would be licit for them to depose this guy and turn the realm over to somebody else. Okay. And the Pope at the time said, sure. The Pope did not pretend that he could remove the last of the Merovingians, but he certainly taught that their subjects could remove him. Right? And the implicit doctrine there was that if the king, by malfeasance, ruptured the implicit contract between himself and the body politic, the body politic could react in such a way as to depose the guy because the king's malfeasance nullified any oath of loyalty which had been taken to the king. Okay? Whether it was a feudal oath or another kind of oath of loyalty. Malfeasance on the part of the superior nullified that. And so you could... You, you know, you, you didn't have to keep a previously made promise, oh, I'll uphold your right to the throne. No, you could act against them and depose them. Well, that was an example of indirect power. Right? The church can advise the prominent citizens of a country that they may in good conscience proceed, proceed against a dictator or a uh, non-functioning Head of state. Hmm? All right. So much for St. Robert Bellarmine and the consensus that had been reached by the end of the period of the Reformation, the Council of Trent. Papal primacy and indirect power. Now then, why then did there have to be a council held in 1870 to nail these things down again one more time? The answer goes back to the year 1673. Okay? Le Roi Soleil, Louis XIV. Okay? decided that his treasury would benefit 
by extending a custom which was an old one in some dioceses. The custom was that when the bishop died and the see became vacant, the revenues of the see could be collected by the crown. And the crown could dispense uh, benefices and so on, uh, clerical livings and so on, that, that pertain to that diocese, until a new bishop was uh, consecrated and installed. Now, there were good reasons why this custom arose in a handful of places. Many times, dioceses had been set up with so much support from the king that they wanted uh, this arrangement whereby the king would enjoy uh, any revenues when the sea was vacant. Sometimes the problem was that a diocese was set in a nest of rapacious local nobles. Okay. As long as the bishop was alive, he could defend his revenues. But as soon as he was out of the way, local nobles would come in, grab, grab, grab. And so some dioceses said, All right, we know how to get out of this. We'll say that the money goes to the throne. Then the king will protect our assets. All right? So that was how the custom had come about. This custom, by the way, went under the name of the regale. Ah, the royal right. The regale. Okay? The matter had been reviewed already in the 13th century at the Fourth Lateran Council. Okay. That council had looked over the issue and said, well, it's tolerable that the revenues of a vacancy go to the crown while it is vacant, if that is the custom already in place. But it is not to be introduced anywhere else. Of course not. You can see how dangerous it is. The king's short of cash. <laughs> Bishop in a fat diocese dies. Hey, let's leave it vacant. As long as it's vacant, the cash comes to the throne. <laughs> and Louis XIV was uh, periodically short of cash. And so that finance minister of his, Colbert, persuaded him to take a drastic step in 1673, namely declare that it was an intrinsic part of his royal authority to collect all revenues from all vacant dioceses, whether it had been traditional there or not. Everywhere in the south of France, the regale custom had never been installed. But now, Louis XIV extends it to the south. There was a schism over this. There were bishops who said, no, your majesty, you're not getting the funds when I die. So it was a touchy thing. And Louis XIV, he wasn't used to people saying no to him. You know what I mean? And so he was greatly annoyed with Pope Innocent XI. 
Innocent the Eleventh was a very austere fellow of very strong convictions and not about to put up with royal nonsense. He had read what the uh, Lateran Council had, had said. No, it was not Lateran. It was the Second Council of Lyon. Second Council, L-Y-O-N. The Second Council of Lyon. Read what they had said, and he um, said, no, Your Majesty, you can't do this. Well, Louis XIV was prepared to have a schism. Okay? prepared to break with the Holy See. <sighs> so things were delicate. And an attempt at conciliation was made. That attempt was a famous council of the clergy of France. It met in 1682, and it issued four articles. Those were called the Four Gallican Articles. Setting out the special understanding of the church in France concerning these matters. Aha. Now, I don't want to go on about this forever because I would like to get to the text of Vatican I tonight. But I have to um, take you through these Gallican articles real quick. The first Gallican article says, Peter and his successors, the vicars of Christ, and indeed the whole church, has received divine power over spiritual things, but absolutely no power over anything temporal. Now, if you mean no direct power, sure, we all agree. But the thing goes further than that. It says, we declare as a result that kings and sovereigns are not subject to any church power by divine ordinance in temporal matters. They cannot be deposed directly or indirectly by the authority of the head of the church. Their subjects cannot be dispensed from the vow of obedience to them. And uh, this doctrine is necessary for the tranquility of the realm, and so on and so on. In other words, Gallican article number one is a total denial of the indirect power. Okay? This was the other side the negative side, if you will, of a doctrine whose positive side was the divine right of kings. Okay. The king said, I am king by a direct ordination of God. Okay. Every bit as much as the pope is, I in the temporal sphere, he in his. And once an oath had been taken, it could not be broken. Okay. By the way, um, one of the most delicious embarrassments of the Church of England is the fact that they agreed completely with this first Gallican article. Okay. 
James I already had a divine right of kings theory. And all of the Jacobite kings, uh, Charles I, Charles II, James II, held this view that they ruled by divine right, they could not be deposed, and nothing could dissolve their subjects' oath of obedience. So, when my beloved pal, James II, announced publicly that he was a Catholic, <laughs> the Church of England was stuck with a Catholic head. And uh, you know, he made all kinds of promises how nice he would be and so on, but they couldn't really tolerate it. And so they gave sanction to a thing called the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Okay. I think it was very inglorious, but we won't get into that. The fact is, <laughs> the Anglican Church had to eat its doctrine on the, the uh, irremovability of, uh, of, of kings. Okay. That was Article 1. Article 2 says that um, the plenitude of power which the Holy Apostolic See and St. Peter's successors uh, received from Jesus Christ is over um, spiritual matters, and is such that the decrees of the Holy Ecumenical Council of Constance, blah, 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 um, uh, preserved in all their force and virtue, and uh, the Church in France does not approve the opinion of those who would weaken the prerogatives of the Holy See. Article 2 was a condemnation of a position called Episcopalism. No relation to Episcopalianism, but Episcopalism, which was more or less Pierre Dailly's idea. Article 3. Here's where things get interesting. The use of the apostolic power that we admit the Pope has, the use of that power, must be regulated according to the canons made by the Holy Spirit and consecrated by general respect. So, the idea is that the Holy See can only rule in such a way that what it does is consistent with established Canons is what the Holy Spirit allegedly set up in the church. Well, needless to say, we're all going to agree that the Pope's teaching has to be in line with the Holy Spirit. Yes, of course. And yes, of course, it is a heresy to say, for example, that the, hope, that the Pope could abolish all canon law. That's a condemned proposition. Okay? Just as it would be a heresy to say the Pope could declare every see in the world vacant and rule everywhere in person. Nonsense. There are things that papal power cannot do. So you would think that that's what this is talking about, but no. No, 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 no. You have to take it in context. 
they're talking about the absence of any indirect power. Okay. And so whatever has been set up by custom in lovely times past is not to be undone by any action of the Holy See. Well, that included the following interesting fact. Shortly after this assembly of 1682, Louis XIV declared that he had the ability to control all communication between the Pope and the Catholics of France. No papal decision, decree, bull, definition could have any authority in France without the king's okay. Hmm? And this is the kind of thing that Article 3 of 1682 is trying to preserve. The fourth Gallican article, although the Pope has the principal part in questions of faith and decrees regarding the whole church, and over each church in particular, nevertheless, his judgment is not irreformable, at least without the consent of the church. Okay? Now there is a specific point that Vatican I was out to reject. Okay? The actions of the Holy See were not irreformable of themselves, but only thanks to the consent of the church. That would include the whole church. That would include the Church of France. And the Church of France couldn't do anything that would displease the King of France. And so basically this meant that nothing the Pope decided could become law or bind consciences in France apart from the royal okay. Okay? Very nasty stuff. Our dogma, dogmatic constitution of Vatican I, the eternal shepherd, was designed to get rid of Gallicanism once and for all. After all, it was time to get rid of it because a little thing, very nasty thing in its own right, called the French Revolution had intervened. And there was no king of France at the time, at least none in office, none doing the job. And um, so Gallicanism was kind of without <laughs> one of its main sources of support. Um, still, there were Gallican theologians. I'm going to give you the name of the most prominent of them. He died in 1729. His name was T-O-U-R-N-E-L-Y, Tornelli. Okay. He wrote the textbooks of ecclesiology that were used in all the French seminaries from one end to the other of the 18th century and well into the 19th. And this guy was a defender of all four of those Gallican articles of 1682. So Gallicanism was living on. And in chapter 3, 
Vatican I defines that the Pope holds a worldwide primacy. The Roman Pontiff is the successor of Blessed Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, true vicar of Christ, head of the whole church, and father and teacher of all Christian people. Now you think, well, that doesn't sound terribly controversial, but Tornelli had said that the Pope was not the vicar of Christ. He was the vicar of the church. Okay? Tornelli had this very interesting position, complicated, subtle. He said, the church has turned over, delegated all of its executive power to the Bishop of Rome. Okay? He is the ultimate law, the ultimate boss, the absolute monarch of the church. Okay? And so he must be obeyed. But he can be wrong. His decrees are not irreformable of themselves. He can be wrong. He's not infallible. He's just the boss, that's all. He's where the buck stops. And you have to pay, obey him even when you're wrong, even when he's wrong, just as you had to obey Louis XV. That cretin. All right. Next. The Roman Church possesses a preeminence of ordinary power over every other church, and it's both episcopal and immediate. There had been Gallican theorists who denied that. It's episcopal and immediate. This by no means detracts, says Vatican I, from that ordinary and immediate power of episcopal jurisdiction by which bishops who have succeeded to the place of the apostles tend and govern individually the particular flocks that have been assigned to them. Next paragraph. This is still chapter 3. It follows from that supreme power that the Roman pontiff has the right, dot, 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 to communicate freely with the pastors and flocks of the entire church so that they may be taught and guided by him in the way of salvation. Therefore, we condemn and reject the opinions of those who hold that this communication of the supreme head with pastors and flocks may be lawfully obstructed. We condemn the idea that that communication can be lawfully obstructed. or that it should be dependent on the civil power, which leads some people to maintain that what is determined by the apostolic see concerning the government of the church has no force or effect unless it's confirmed by the agreement of civil authority. Okay? Direct blow against Gallicanism. Next, if anyone says the Roman pontiff has merely an office of supervision and guidance but not the full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole church. Or that he has only the principal part, but not the fullness of this power of jurisdiction. Let him be anathema. Okay? So there uh, is uh, Gallican Article 4 struck down. And uh, finally, at the very end of this first 
dogmatic constitution on the church, on which Vatican II will build, as we will see. The Council defines as a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, dot, 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 he possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in Blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith and morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not by consent of the church, irreformable of themselves. They're irreformable, not by the subsequent consent of the church. We have all lived through an episode that should make us all very glad that this point was nailed down with big nails and firm hammer blows in 1870. We have all lived through the aftermath of Paul VI's encyclical Humani Vitae. Yeah. He resolved it in a way that many bishops throughout the world didn't like. Because there were all kinds of lay people all over the world who got tired of the idea that hanging up diapers was hanging up victory banners for Jesus. They didn't want to have more children. They wanted birth control to be licit. Okay? God forbid they should have to abstain from time to time. Unthinkable. No. They wanted all the joys of matrimony, no abstinence whatsoever, and contraception as the, the preventative of conception. And there were Episcopal conferences in Canada, in several European countries that frankly said, well, Humani Vitae is the Pope's opinion, but uh, we, don't agree, we don't quite, you know, we think it's up to conscience. And, and, there was a perfect example of a papal teaching formally resolving a debated issue. Okay. And it did not get the universal consensus of the church agreeing to it. Okay. Did that make it a non-doctrine? Charlie Curran thought so. But Charlie Curran had forgotten his long ago reading of Vatican I. We shall not forget. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. Our usual uh, break. You have to understand, I'm an engineer, not a history major, so I'll yeah. try this question. Uh, it, if Humana Vitae was kind of the finger in the dike that prevented perhaps or helped the Catholic Church not to go in the direction that the Episcopals the others went, yeah. uh, and Humana Vitae was uh, published under Paul VI, then where is the objection to him? I don't know if I understood it, that's all. Oh, um the issuance of the encyclical Humani Vitae is one of the great acts of his pontificate. Uh, and he did many other, put out many other wonderful teaching acts as well. That catechism of the people of God, etc., etc. My complaint about him is that he spent all of his time reading theology books and not governing the church. Okay. He let too many messy situations get out of hand. He had ruled, for example, against communion in the hand. 
the American bishop said, we're going to introduce it anyway. And Paul was six and, well, well, be that way. Now, he, he, yeah, he needed to administer more. Um, I, I'm sorry, I just have a real bone to pick with popes who are great teachers and lackadaisical administrators. Somebody's got the clean curial house, you know what I mean? Never mind. Okay, I apologize in advance. It's been a while since I studied this part of history. But I was wondering if you could speak on the effect on the French church uh, by Napoleon I's relationship with uh, Pope Pius and what happened to Gallicanism at that point after the revolution during the First Empire and maybe uh, a bit on Napoleon III and his relationship with the church. Uh, I can give you a very quick answer to that. Uh, when Napoleon moved to regularize the situation of the church in France, he insisted upon restoring the full set of Gallican articles. Okay. So that was part of the restoration. Uh, so uh, Napoleon did not make any kind of a dent at all in Gallicanism. It's just that it, it would no longer be a, a Capetian or a Bourbon who would enjoy these privileges. It would be uh, L'Empereur. When someone is said to be anathema, does that mean excommunicated? Uh, not literally. I mean, if you want to say you're excommunicated in Latin, you say excommunicatus es, thou art. Excommunicated. Anathema means sort of which we give up. We give up on them. You know, we give them up to their own devices. We can't do any more with them. Dr. Marshner, I wasn't yeah. quite clear when you said the church had indirect authority. Were you speaking of individual bishops, or is the church embodied in the Holy Father Both. having the indirect authority? Both. Both? Yeah. Both an individual bishop in his see, in a, if he gets into a contest with some sort of local magistrate, and the Holy See itself, if he gets in the context with into a battle of some kind with the head of state. Um, although the Holy See does not have authority to rule anybody's kingdom in this world, my kingdom is not of this world, said the Lord, uh, nevertheless, political acts can come under ecclesiastical judgment by reason of some wrongness about those acts. Okay? And then the church can give a judgment which binds people in conscience. Okay? And, uh, you know, when things are good in Christendom, then the offending prince or monarch repents. You know, stands outside in the snow in bare feet, something nice like that, <laughs> repents. When things are bad, they don't repent, but take further action to try to make trouble for the church. But then the church can remove the obligation of their subjects to obey them. This is what, 
It was Sixtus V, wasn't it, who put out the, the bull reg, regnum in excelsis, regnans in excelsis, declaring that the loyalty of Catholics in England to Elizabeth was dissolved. Okay? Now, did he have the right, did he have the power to make such a judgment? Oh, sure. And Elizabeth's conduct amply justified some such move. The trouble is, it was so politically stupid. I mean, one cannot believe that he did this. Because it made, it, it gave Elizabeth the excuse to treat every Catholic in England as a traitor. They had all along professed their, their loyalty. You know, even though your majesty smite us, we are your loyal subjects. Well, all of a sudden, the Pope had said they could, ah, he could be a traitor. So she assumed, okay, they're all traitors now. The Pope told him so. And the result, of course, was more vicious persecution. The indirect power is a delicate thing. You may have it, but it isn't always smart to use it. In fact, we have an example tonight. In the aftermath of the big French clergy meeting of 1682 that passed these, these, these four uh, uh, articles, what did Innocent XI do? What did the Pope at the time do? Huh? Did he approve of these articles? No, no, no. Did he pursue the matter with Louis XIV? No, no, no. It was time to back off and wait. I mean, after all, this whole mess had started over this little business about the revenues of vacancies. It just wasn't worth another major schism. You know, let's not turn Louis XIV into another Henry VIII. Hmm? So the Holy See bided its time. And we saw, finally, its response to those articles in 1870. Just kept, just kept quiet about it. Most of your conversation to, um, this evening has been about in the realm of kings, kingdoms, whatnot. Fast forward to today, 140 years later, there's hardly any kings or kingdoms that are around. Right. Most are democratic uh, regimes. Right. But how does all of this play into, you know, in today's environment, we have, we, we have a lot of elected democracies as opposed to kings? Yeah. Well, I wish I could say that on the whole, the democracies are better behaved than the monarchs of old had been. There were theologians at the end of World War I who were dancing with joy because down had gone the Habsburgs in Austria, down had gone the Romanovs in Russia, and they had all had privileges and powers, and they the Russians persecuted our church, and the Austrian emperor had certain vetoes on... Ay, ay, ay. We were finally rid of these people. But the 20th century did not turn out to be politically friendly to the church. Right? 
not only Hitler and Stalin, but also lots of other authorities in lots of other countries uh, have felt that they had a right to restrain communication of the Holy See with their citizens. Okay? And um, we, we came close to that in the United States. The know-nothings, if they'd had their way, certainly would have prevented the Pope of Rome from communicating with American citizens. Okay? Unless it suited them. So, um, uh, um, for all of the aches and pains that came with having Catholicism as a religion of the, as the religion of the state, we have learned, we have had to learn to live with another bunch of aches and pains uh, in states with no religion of the state. And where they um, are not always careful of religious liberty, you know. So I mean, the the First Amendment is some protection, but um, there are worse things than an established national church, and perhaps radical secularization of the state will turn out to be a far worse thing. Uh, It's worthwhile to read over again the last couple of pages of John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae. That's where he talks about this claim that in a democracy we have to approve the will of the people and if they want abortion that's how we have to vote. Okay, And he has um, some interesting sentences on the point that um, the uh, moral truth is the bedrock of any sound political order. And you, uh, he's not about to allow that argument to go through. So anyway, is that it? Well, I, I actually have the final question here, Dr. Marshall. Whoa. I'm going to allow myself a, a calmer or two in, uh, in the middle. Um, you had said in a previous talk that reconciliation with the Orthodox is very much dependent upon our reading of Vatican I and whether we can read Vatican I in such a way or explain Vatican I in such a way that the Orthodox could swallow it. Um, to what extent are we to read an ecumenical council within its historical context in which it was originally dealing as Vatican I was, was with Gallicanism? Mm-hmm. To what extent does that same council teach us in our relationship with other problems that we face, such as reunion with the Orthodox? Well, it's a two-edged sword. Let's put it that way. On the one side, our success at Vatican I in getting rid of the last remnants of Gallicanism, Caesaropapism, and all that kind of stuff, was a great victory of independence for the church. Okay? The church um, condemned forms of subjection, which she, she had historically been under, even in certain very great Western countries. The Orthodox should be happy to see a thing like that, because they themselves have lived under very oppressive regimes. 
Okay? And I'm going back, going back to the Byzantine Empire. Um, and I, I, I don't just mean the, um, you know, the uh, iconoclast emperors. But our Orthodox emperors could be a pain in the neck. Heraclius being a perfect example. And there were others. Um, and, you know, it, it got to be the one job in the world you did not want. I don't care how ambitious you are. The one job in the world you did not want was Patriarch of Constantinople. Because soon as the emperor looked askance at you, which he would do if the emperor's mistress looked askance at you, you were out of a job. The church in the East has always needed a level of political independence that we have enjoyed in the West, partly because of the independence of the papal states and partly because of the clarity of doctrine about the independence of Christ's um, establishment of the church from political constraints. Okay? On the other hand, this is the other blade, this is the bad side, if you want to put it that way, Vatican I makes it perfectly clear that in order to be in union with Rome, you must confess a primacy of jurisdiction. That, mean, that excludes the idea of a mere primacy of honor. You know. uh, it excludes the idea that popes and other bishops are basically equal. It excludes the idea that, sure, the five big patriarchal sees of the fourth century, that, that's, that's where it is. They all agree. These theories are gone, as far as we're concerned. And uh, the only thing we can do to hold out an olive branch to the East is pledge that in return for accepting Vatican I's definition, we will not extend to the East the kind of centralization of administration in Rome which we have done in the West. All right? For example, I mean, the Easterners were absolutely horrified by the idea that their own synods couldn't select bishops to replace ones who died. Um, the idea that you'd have to go to the Roman congregation for bishops. What? Well, nobody ever went to a Roman congregation for bishops in the West, in the 12th century, the 13th century, the 14th century. That, that kind of centralization of administration is part of the aftermath of the Reformation. I mean, every, everything that has been done to centralize more and more power in the Holy See has been done for good reason. But that doesn't mean that it's the right prescription for every part of the world. Okay? Um, I uh, certainly would be sad to see um, the Eastern Church's authority over their liturgy kicked upstairs to some Roman congregation for egalitarian language in liturgical texts or something. 
We don't want that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we'd, ha we'd have to say, look, the role of the Pope as Patriarch of the West has allowed him to exercise a great degree of administrative control here in the West. We, n we do not pretend that that level of control would be justified in the East. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Thank you all for coming this evening. We'll see you on Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.